We love at No Film School to talk about filmmakers who came up the DIY indie style way, scraping by with less resources, finding a way to be creative and do things that amaze people and launch their careers. My guest today is a legendary example of this, the great Joe Dante. Joe Dante is a filmmaker behind so many classics from Gremlins to The Burbs, which is one of my favorites, to Amazon Women on the Moon. If you haven't seen that, check it out. It's hilarious. Inner Space, the Twilight Zone movie that he worked on with Spielberg, among others, Matinee, and so many TV series. There's so much more that Joe's done in his career. He bends genre. He melds things. He's kind of a pastiche, postmodern style filmmaker, if you want to get snooty about it. He just has a great instinct, and he's a true cinephile. And today, I'm talking to him about something he's doing with Shout Factory TV and Scream Factory TV, where he's picked seven films on September 3rd that he feels are underseen, underappreciated classics. And we talk specifically about one on that list and how it's a great watch if you can get your hands on it in terms of inspiring what you can do with less. But so much of what Joe's about, I mean, he came up with Roger Corman, which is where our conversation really begins, like James Cameron, among others, Jack Nicholson, so many. But so much of what Joe's about is how you stretch the dollar, how you get creative with limitations. And he even talks about how sometimes more money does indeed equal more problems. So we talk about the screening process. We talk about breaking into the industry. We talk about what's available to filmmakers today. Uh, and Joe is just a wealth of knowledge and film experience. So be sure to listen for the whole thing because we'll also talk about a couple of things Joe's been working on that are just perfect no film school audience tie-ins that I think you'll all really enjoy. So here we go, Joe Dante. Well, thank you so much for doing this, first of all. It's really exciting to have you. Honored to speak, have you on the show and speak with you. There's so much to talk about. You know, with No Film School, we try to be sort of educationally focused and we have a big DIY independent film aspect to our culture and our history. And to me, you're one of the great, you know, voices in that coming from working with Roger Corman. So I kind of want to just start with that and the beginning of your career and just kind of hear a little bit about how you cut your teeth and how those early opportunities helped kind of define what you were going to do and how you do it. Well, I, like a number of people, I was lucky enough to uh, get to work for Roger Corman when I didn't know anything. <laughs> the, great, the great leveler was that uh, almost everybody that was working there was was just starting out and was learning on the job. And uh, in fact, on a, on a couple of my movies, the uh, people who were in different compartments, people who were in the art department or the sound department, suddenly decided that wasn't they wanted to do at all. They wanted to do something else. They wanted to do costumes. They wanted, you know, it was it was a, it was a, a free for all atmosphere in which people discovered what their talents were. And um, and we're allowed to you know exploit them to the degree that the, the budget allowed. And so, uh, as you know, a lot of people went through that matriculation and came out on the other end as bona fide filmmakers with many times uh, Academy Awards and things. Yeah, I, I wasn't one of those, but um, <laughs> you did all right. You, you I did, did all right. I had a picture that won an Academy Award for special effects, so I was happy. 
but you, the things you learned, obviously, there uh, was how to how to make how to stretch a dollar, uh, how to make a decision, the importance of knowing what you were doing and not flailing around trying things that didn't work. So there was, uh, considering how little money was really being spent, it, it felt like a tremendous amount of pressure to me. I mean, my first picture cost sixty thousand dollars, and I thought sixty thousand dollars. I mean, I wore the I wore those dollar signs on my shoulders like they were like a, a steamer trunk because I, I just it's just it's a huge amount of money. Uh, <laughs> and here, uh, Alan Arkish and I had ten days to make this movie on a bet. The producer John Davison had made with Rogers, saying that he could make the cheapest movie that he made at New World Pictures, and and Rogers said, uh, "Okay, but you got to do it in ten days." And uh, the only way we could figure out how to make something releasable was to uh, construct it around footage from movies that we've been cutting trailers for. And we, so we do all the action scenes ah. and dressing our actors up like the people in the clips and then using them uh, throughout the movie. Uh, and, and the gimmick was that it was supposed to be a, a, a movie about um, making movies. So the, 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 Roger had been doing um, teachers who take their clothes off, nurses who take their clothes off. And now it was moving about starlets who take their clothes off. And we, uh, so we, we, we wrote this uh, movie about uh, a, a movie company where there's murders. We stole the plot from a Bela Lugosi movie called The Death Kiss. And it was murders on a movie set. And we were able to use footage from all these different movie sites, fiction movies, war movies, uh, you know, 30s gangster movies, and, and justify them because they were all movies being made by this company. And so that's why people were dressed that way. And it was... It was pretty inside. I mean, if you if you look at it today, it's almost a documentary about the way that low budget movies were in Southern California yeah. in the seventies. But it was great for us because we got to you know do everything and figure it all out and edit it, try to make it work, and discover all the mistakes we made, which is the great thing about being able to edit your own material. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Have you ever wanted to watch something and it's just not available in your region? Have you ever been curious what UK Netflix or maybe some other country's version of some of the popular streamers has available that your local one doesn't? Well, there's something called NordVPN. And by using NordVPN, with the click of a button, you can access all kinds of content that maybe you didn't even know existed. With 5,000 plus server options, no show is out of your reach. So use my link, nordvpn.com forward slash nofilmschool, and you can receive a huge discount on a two-year plan plus one free month. We all love to binge shows, but privacy is a big deal too. NordVPN keeps your information encrypted, so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. We all love watching and streaming all these shows, but we also care about our privacy, and NordVPN keeps your information encrypted. So you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. And they've also doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. So say goodbye to intrusive website ads and malware. Even if you download an infected file, threat protection will kick in and delete it before it makes a mess of your computer 
or whatever device you're using. So don't forget that there is actually no risk to you by trying this because there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So give it a try. If you like it, great. If you don't, you get a full refund and you can pretend the whole thing never happened. Check out my link, nordvpn.com forward slash nofilmschool to get your subscription started today. I feel like so, like in a way, thinking about some of your other anthology pieces or some of the ways you combine comedy with horror aspects or just genre aspects throughout your career, it feels like that project kind of set up a certain tone. Did you just gravitate towards that or was it always in you? Because like, like I'm thinking about like Amazon Women on the Moon or even Police Squad doing some of those or even the Burbs and Gremlins, like it's a matinee. It feels like you gravitated towards like, I'm going to jumble it up, mix it up, reformat it, throw it back out. And it's going to be a little funny and a little crazy and a little scary. Like, you know what I mean? Like well, yeah, that that's, kind of... That's sort of, that's sort of the way that I was experiencing movies. I mean, I am in my, in my generation, you know, we... We went to the movies on Saturday afternoon uh, for a double feature and 10 cartoons. And then we went home and watched television, which more or less was either cartoons and movies. And so that was pretty much the way I experienced the world. So when it came time to put my limited worldview on film, uh, it was naturally fragmented. And and I've I've kind of carried that along with me for um, all these years. Uh, And every movie that I do, I try to filter through my own personality and and the the bigger the budget the harder it is to assert your personality because of course the temptation is for the people who are giving you the money well don't make it too quirky don't make it too mm. because you know then everybody won't like it and we want movies that everybody likes um, yeah which is which i think is a fallacy i think that the, the movies that are, that are, are the lasting movies are movies that were personal to the people who made them at the time that's a really interesting topic because you talked about the challenges of the $60,000, but it felt like a lot, but also like the bigger the budget, the bigger the problems sort of, or because the more voices, right, that well, come yeah, in. And- of course. I mean, I, I had the, uh, the benefit of working for, you know, two people initially, uh, Roger Corman and Steven Spielberg, two people that I could go to with a problem and who knew what I was talking about. And when you finally go up the ladder and now you're working for committees, you have a problem and you ask somebody and it goes up the ladder and you come down and there's an answer, but you don't even know whose answer it is or how it was arrived at. And so it's, it's, it's a lot harder. If you're, if you're working for people who really know movies, it just makes your job so much easier. Can you tell me a little bit about that like collaboration with Spielberg just because also somebody who I think probably experienced the world through that fragmented media reality understood exactly what you were trying to do and, and what your, you know, your, your tone and your, your perspective was, but just that you were like, could you just say like, this is something I want to try to do. This is quirky and weird. And he would say, sure, do it. Was it or was it like, like, what was that dynamic? That was pretty much the case. I mean, uh, the, the, <laughs> the thing about uh, directors is that if you're a producer, uh, is that you cast the director the way you would cast actors. You know, if you, if you cast the right guy, uh, then you can let him, do what he's supposed to do. I mean, the mistake that I think studio people make is they hire people and then don't let them do their job. You know, mm. they, they, they try to, they try to usurp them and, and do the job that I would do if I was in your job, except I can't because I don't know what you're doing. It's it can become a very, a, a kind of a death spiral. And, uh, and working for Stephen and Roger was, they were collaborators. They, they wanted you to do good work. They obviously, there was a, a little more money 
when you're working for Stephen than it was when you're working with Rod. Sure. But uh, Spielberg was very supportive to the point of even previewing the movies, not in work print form, but in finished form. He would let you finish the movie, mix it, put the sound on, do the music score, all that kind of stuff, and then take it out and see how the movie fares at its best. And in most cases, they would, you know, you'd be previewing a scratchy work and work print, sometimes black and white with splices and cue marks and you know uh, crayon marks all over it, and 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 the and the scene missing slugs, and the audience would it would of course not whatever reaction the audience gave you would be not the real reaction they would get if they actually saw a finished movie. But Stephen just ran roughshod over that, and he finished the movies. Because audiences don't know how to use that imagination. or Probably executives a lot of times don't either, right? Because you're going to see a slug missing piece and you're going to think there's something wrong here subconsciously, like, right? It's just that you can't get into it. You can't follow it. There's no flow if you have to keep stopping it, you know? And and there are very few executives in my experience who actually understood how to watch a rough cut and make the allowances that you need to make in order to see what the movie was supposed to be like, you know, at some point. Yeah. So in that case, and also, you know, the preview process is, is a terrifying process anyway, because you're, you're putting your work out in front of people for the first time. And um, if somebody gets up to go to the bathroom during a scene that you argue <laughs> the studio, yes. you have to cut that scene, that guy went to the bathroom. Uh, yes, <laughs> I'm sure that's a nightmare. Just because that would hurt, that's confusing emotionally as an artist anyway, regardless of if it's a battle that you're already fighting with someone. And then that's going to be a point well, for them. And also, they, <laughs> they, they, they rely so much on these tests and test scores and stuff. I, I mean, I had uh, an executive say to me after a really successful preview, uh, well, let's see what the numbers say. <laughs> I know, probably the audience is like on their feet applauding the movie. Well, let's see what the numbers say. Because the numbers, you know, maybe they, maybe they really didn't like it. It, yeah, it's 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 difficult, and uh, and I think that's why studio filmmaking is um, is very difficult for people uh, now, in particular when there's so much more money riding on everything. Um, it's difficult to be expressive, to be able to express your personality. And- it's seemingly even harder now, maybe than ever before. Seems like to get yeah. through all the noise and to have that. But on the other end, there's all these like smaller audiences coming through streaming platforms and things like that, where they can kind of pick out what they want in a different that's, way. That's true. And also if you're, you know, if you're an established filmmaker, like my friend, George Miller, who I, I made the Twilight Zone movie with, uh, he has a new movie out called the 3000 years of longing. Yes. People expecting Fury road Two are going to be disappointed <laughs> with because it's not that kind of movie, but it is a, a beautiful, brilliantly made movie in the Michael Powell tradition. And I don't think that it's probably gotten enough uh, press. I don't think it's gotten enough uh, promotion. It's a very satisfying picture to watch, but I, it's, there's no way it's going to do as well as his previous picture because it's just not that kind of picture. But at least he got to make his movie his way. Seems like they're having a hard time figuring out how to advertise it, right? They don't know how to tell people to go see it. They're seemingly they, they confused. They don't know what they have, and that's yeah. not the first time that's ever happened. No heard that phrase before (laughs) it's interesting because you reference michael powell you have this list of curated movies and a lot of them are kind of like classic genres are these movies the ones you're doing the intros for is there a specific reason this is the collection that you're doing this with well they're all owned by shock factory yeah which is 
that we do, which is the uh, obviously I, I can't just say, well, let's you know, let's, <laughs> you can't make anything out of it. Let's do this Japanese month. Sure. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I had to choose from the list of things they own, but they but they they do own quite a few things, and been very good to me because they put out a lot of my work uh, in upgraded editions and uh, you know, yeah versions with doc, you know documentaries and and they rescued a lot of found footage from explorers, which I never thought we would see. So that was great. Uh, and, but also, the, you know, their their list is full of pictures that I was very familiar with already. And I thought, well, well I'll just pick a couple of pictures that I think if, that people probably heard the titles of, but they don't, have probably never actually bothered to see them. Or maybe they're just curious about them, or maybe they're movies that they that I think they should see. I think they should know about. That's what I do on my website, Trailers from Hell. We try to, you know, get people interested in movies that they might not have known about before. And I, on my podcast, it was the same thing. I didn't. This is the first I knew about the website and the podcast. So I'm excited to hear about that and let our audiences know because people, to me, exposing people who want to do film or know more about film to more than just the standard classics or the things they've heard about is like the key to expanding the palette. You know, well, it is. It's it's the it's the key to to true cinephilia and the website, which has been going on for about ten years. Uh, is called Trailers from Hell, and it's and it's movie trailers narrated by filmmakers, writers, directors, cameramen, whatever, all talking about what that movie means to them and what they think about it and why you should see it. And I love that. We've got over two thousand trailers on the site, nice, and, uh, and some really great commentators. Uh, and and they tell you sometimes they they're movies that they saw when they were kids. And the podcast is the movies that made me, which I do with Josh Olson, uh, and we have filmmakers on our show and they we talk a little bit about their their work but mostly they tell us the movies that made them want to make films and so we get a quite a, an eclectic bunch of i love that movies. that's oftentimes the first question i ask to people i didn't ask to you today <laughs> but oftentimes they say what what's the movies that made you want to do this in the first place so now i'm we just gonna ask you <laughs> i'm gonna start listening but what is that for you what is the movie what are the movies well there's no single I mean, I, I, yeah. I was a Saturday matinee kid. I used to go to that. I was a huge Disney file, all the Disney comics, all the Disney cartoons, uh, and cartoons in general. And so I went to the movies on Saturday to see the 10 cartoons. And then one day I stayed to see it came from outer space in 3D. And I realized that maybe even though they had adults in them, uh, there were, there were some movies that were, were kind of interesting. Uh, and I became, that became my church. I used to spend weekends at the movies. Uh, much to the chagrin of my parents, uh, my, my friend's parents, and uh, became a, a film nut. I mean, there was no other way to go. I never thought I would make films because I thought it would be too complicated and hard. But I did want to be a cartoonist. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just watch the 10 cartoons. Um, Which cartoons and cartoonists were the most impactful to you? Because sometimes I feel like that is an overlooked but I, I often think like Chuck Jones and some of the Warner Brothers stuff is an overlooked in, influence and inspiration to a lot of filmmaking trends that we've seen most popularized. I think that's I think that's true. And when I, when I was a kid, you know, the ten cartoons started out being they they they, they spent money for the Disney cartoons and the Warner cartoons, which were the best. Then they started sneaking in a lot of Woody Woody Woodpecker, which was okay. <laughs> so then, then when then when things got lean. There were a lot less of those, and they were more Paramount cartoons, and that's like Little Audrey and Little Lana and uh, Baby Huey, and these horrible cartoons. Permanent. I mean, these are, <laughs> these are rotten cartoons. Which you don't see these cartoons anymore. And I've only terrible. seen a few. 
Most of those I've never heard of, but Baby Huey was like, okay, yeah, I heard about no, no, Woody Woodpecker, obviously. Really yeah. bad. But, um, <laughs> and there were some Woody Woodpeckers because, uh, you know, Ted said, yes, yeah. went over there and did some yes. uh, stuff for Walter Lanson. And so there was a lot of good stuff being done. But then in the early to late 60s, things got really bad. Warner Brothers closed their, uh, their shop and uh, mm-hmm. they had to go scrambling. And the last cartoons from Warner Brothers are pretty sad. Uh, and even even the MGMs and the Tom and Jerry's, the, even when Chuck Jones went over to try to save Tom and Jerry, you, that that didn't really work. And so, the the great cartoon era is over by I would say 1960. Uh, yeah, the great I, cartoons yeah. precede that. And there are there are a few exceptions along the way, but once you get into junk like the Pink Panther and, and stuff that are mm. they hardly even move. You know, I mean, they're literally TV cartoons. It's that Xeroxy quality they have. Yeah. There's something so beautiful about the art. Just the colors in the 50s you, and the 40s. If you watch uh, like, MeTV, which uh, is on a lot of different markets, they have a cartoon show in the morning called Tune In With Me. And they have a lot of restored cartoons from the 40s and 30s uh, that look more gorgeous now than they've ever looked before. Unfortunately, they're yeah. presented with the tops and bottoms cut off for the most part because they uh, don't look widescreen. Right. But they look fabulous. And, and they're... There's a lot of restorations. The interesting thing about cartoons is that because of the racist nature of a lot of cartoons of that period, there's a whole bunch of them they can't run because they just are completely out of step with the times. I mean, they're still interesting historically, and some of them are even brilliant, like called Black and the Seven Dwarfs. We're in cartoon, but try explaining it to someone today. Yeah, it's, I, it's, I it's love rough, it's a rough one. When HBO Max, I, don't, I hope they don't end up pulling a lot of them, but they put so many of the classic Warners on and watch them with some of my younger, my younger son. And it's amazing the kinds of jokes that they could, like someone pulls out a gun and shoots somebody else and you're like, oh my God, like that's not something well, you've seen. For a long thing. time on the networks, they would reanimate that stuff. They <laughs> couldn't put them on the networks because they'd have to have them pull out a pop gun or something like that. And, right, right. Uh, and and uh, luckily, I think most of those have been deep six, but. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it, it, these are different eras, and uh, you know we have we have different standards now. But uh, I think yes. the old stuff is still beautifully done, and it holds up well. And I yeah, hearing that it makes me realize how also just your some of your humor. I we have to wrap it up soon, but like I just thinking about the Burbs, it has so much cartoon comedy that yeah. works for humans. But it's just that is part of why I love it. Now I now I realize what the connection is. Um. If you were giving someone advice today about getting in, especially given the challenges, <laughs> well, what you know, would you? Well, I'm, I'm often asked by film students, so how did you, how did you get started? And I, yeah. I always say, you know, I can tell you how I got started, but it is completely ir- irrelevant to you. Yes. Because that world doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. You know, we were shooting on film. We were, we were making things for drive-ins. We were, yeah, it, 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 it's not the same market. And also the, the culture has changed to a point where, the kind of movies that I started making, which were, you know, for Roger Corman, like there were lots of movies, lots of movies. <laughs> not, Those aren't happening, right? <laughs> you know, and no, that's, that's totally not happening. I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just different. And mm-hmm. so uh, I think the, the great thing, people who want to make movies now, is that, you know, we had, to, we had very cumbersome equipment when we had to shoot on film and we had to take it to the lab and to edit it. And, you know, you can do all that stuff on your phone you can do mm-hmm. it on your computer now. I mean, you can make, and, and movies have been made on iPhones, feature phones. And you can do that. And all you need to do is have an idea and have um, some people, your friends or somebody to play in the picture and get an idea of what you can do on a, on a small scale. 
one of the movies that we're running on the Shout series is called The Sadist, and it's a uh, it's a horror film set in a junkyard, based on a real incident, and it's only got a cast of five or six, one of whom is the production manager, and it never and it never leaves the junkyard. Plus, it takes place entirely in the time that it takes to watch the movie, and mm. it's a, it's a it's a it's shot by Vilmos Zygmunt, uh, is one of his early Hollywood movies, and uh, it's a it's a textbook example of what can be done with very little means, and it's a terrific watch. It's a terrific movie, and it's a it's a template for what I think people can do if they really want to get together and put on a show. It's a good point because the tools make it so much easier now than yeah. it would have been. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I'm gonna check out the podcast and the website. I'm excited. Oh, for both. Thank you so much for your time and and congratulations on this. And we'll be we'll be checking it out. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thank you, Joe, for coming on the podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I love that we talked about cartoons. I'm a big fan. It's just so funny how that ties into all his work. And I think you can see so much of what he's about and that influence in other filmmakers like Quentin Tarantino, for example, or the Coen brothers, or just so much of the stuff that I personally really love. I think uh, Joe uses his experience as a cinephile, as he says, to filter all his ideas and stories. And for so many of us who get into this, that's our main thing, right? We love movies. So there's a way to be creative, to break through, to do different kinds of things, even if your main influence is just other movies. There's always going to be a place for you in this industry. And I personally felt when Joe started talking about what you can do with the cell phone, I was like, damn, why aren't more people just doing that? And I know I've thought about it a lot. We all have. We think about what's cap- what we're capable of with so few resources these days. But when you consider what someone used to have to do to get an indie film made in his era, you realize it's just so much easier now. Now, the other question is, of course, will people see it? But that all depends on what you're doing. Be sure to check out All kinds of great filmmaking stories at nofilmschool.com. Like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Please leave a comment and let us know what you think. Be sure to send your questions to editor at nofilmschool.com. We love to answer them on our weekly show, which usually comes out on Thursdays. And we love hearing from you. Also, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook. We're doing some cool things on the socials lately, different than we've done before. So... We'd love you to see all of that and comment or retweet or, you know, whatever you do with social media stuff. Wow, you made it all the way to the end. Have a great day. Mm